0: The scriptures tell us that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and to those who are called according to his purpose. But what is the consequence for those who do not love the Lord? What works? For them, it would seem to me that if all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord, Uh then for those that do not love the Lord, Mm. things don't look so good. The age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people, expressly lets us know that you and I have no idea who among us is good or bad. The fact of the matter is is that bad things happen to all of us simply because none of us are really good it, so in the midst of this foray of wickedness that we see all around us in these United States and in the world God calls some people, some people. to serve at his good pleasure yeah. and it is of those that God chooses Things work together for good, not necessarily for their good, but for good. So the question, what is the consequence for those that do not love the Lord, brings me to the subject matter that I want to talk about today, and that subject matter is hate. I want to talk about hate. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of Esther, which was read earlier. The book of Esther, the fifth chapter, and the ninth through the fourteenth verses. Now, we're got, now I'm going to jump around through multiple verses in the text, but I want you to kind of latch on to Esther 5, 9 through 14. Then Haman, picking up verse 9, Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, and the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet, which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, have a gallows 50 cubits high made. And in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Picking up at verse 5 in chapter 6, here's what it says. The king's servants said to him, behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom the king would desire to honor more than me? Who would the king? This is what Naaman says to himself. Who would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. Haman is saying this because Haman thinks in his heart that he is the person to be honored. And Haman goes on further to say, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble princes. And let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Jumping to chapter 7, picking up again at verse 9, we hear these words. Then Harbonah, One of the king's eunuchs, who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. Lastly, let's go to chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai, the Jew, was second only to the king and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. With this in mind, and to steer us in the direction that I would like to lead us today, I have titled this message quite simply, The Cage You Build. The Cage You Build. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, how excellent is your name in all the earth. These are difficult times for your church and for your people. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you will inspire me to speak with authority. Inspire me, Lord, to be able to speak a word, not from my emotions or even from my intellect, but from my spirit, that your people may hear what you have to say. Bless now this assembly, we pray, as you already have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've seen since the inauguration of this president an increase in hate crimes and violence towards people of color, and I'm not mincing my words, perpetrated by white males. Perpetrated by white males. According to the FBI, in 2017, single bias incident motivation by category showed that 58% of what, hate crimes, were attributed to race and ethnicity. 58% of hate crimes attributed to race and ethnicity. And out of that 58%, what you need to know is that it represents an 18% rise over 2016. So something is going on in these United States. Now, the statistic that is most glaring, which I'm not showing here, is out of that 18% rise where you have the 58% of these crimes being committed, what you need to know is that 51% of the people who are committing this 58% crime, which is 18% more than 2016, are perpetrated by white men. So something has stirred in white men. Whatever that something is, I'm telling you, something has stirred. In a 2018 study by professors at the University of Alabama, and Loyola University, they stated that a number of people had predicted that Donald Trump's divisive rhetoric, the words that he speaks during the presidential campaign and his subsequent election would embolden hate crime perpetrators, thereby contributing to the increase. This is what most people had said, and the study found out that this thing they call the Trump effect, right? They studied from 1992 till 2018. They looked at hate crimes, and what they discovered is that with the election of this president, there was a spike that they had not seen since since they started the study. They hypothesized that it was not just Trump's inflammatory rhetoric throughout his political campaign that caused the hate crimes to increase, but it was his subsequent election. Here's what I'm trying to tell you, my brothers and my sisters. It's one thing to say when you're campaigning, all these negative things. They bring in rapists. They are bad people. It's one thing to say all of that and to stir up people It's another thing to get actually elected, which serves as validation for what you have said. I was watching the news, and the interesting point was made by one of the commentators, is that we can stand on the sidelines and criticize this president as much as we want. But what you need to understand is that what that president is is an embodiment of us. He didn't start hate. He wasn't the architect of hate. But he is the embodiment of it. In the very same way we look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything about Jesus is good and wonderful. Jesus Christ in the flesh is the embodiment of all that is good in God. In the very same way that Satan is the embodiment of all that is evil. So Donald Trump is the embodiment of of a spirit, a zeitgeist of these United States, and he represents the spirit of this people. Mm. Wow. And in the midst of it all, God has given the church a responsibility. Come on, preacher. Come on. So the Trump effect, in essence, is real. And it saddens me, and many of you can attest to this. It saddens me that I was so prophetically accurate When I stated back in 2016 these words, these are my words. If Donald Trump wins the election, it would be for me a sign that God has given over this nation to a reprobate mind. I said those words before his election. And I'm standing here today to you, my brothers and my sisters, saying it saddens me that I was prophetically accurate. Seems to me that a Pandora's box that serves as a doorway to the very pit of hell has been opened and something demonic has been unleashed in these United States. I don't know if you see it. I don't even know if you feel it. I don't know if your spirits or your consciences have actually been awakened to it. But what I'm telling you is that something is dreadfully wrong with these United States of America. We've just come through a recent bait of mass shootings where a gunman attacked a Walmart in the border city of El Paso, killing 22 people and injuring 24 more. And on that night, another mass shooting at a bar in Dayton, Ohio, where 10 people were killed, including the perpetrator, and 27 others were injured. In an article dated, and I'm giving you some information before we get to the text, because there's nothing new under the sun. In an article dated August 7th in Christianity Today, Adam Greenway, president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, stated these words, we condemn." in the strongest possible form any and all ideologies of racial ethnic superiority, inferiority, that fuel the kind of hate evidently motivating the El Paso shooter to commit such a horrific act of violence in our state. The strongest possible form, What what does that even mean? On a Sunday following the killings, preachers like Greg Laurie, and I'm calling them by name, and Jack Graham, attributed the surge in shootings to an escalating spiritual battle and the work of the devil, which, in my opinion, while true on one level, is still kind of a cop-out for not calling out the surge for what it is, an evil rooted in hate and racist white supremacy. Furthermore, while... Many people are now willing to decry this kind of increase in hate crime violence and to correctly attribute it to the intensity of divisive words and rhetoric coming from this president, the most powerful office in all the world. It now seems mainstream for hate to run rampant throughout this nation. To be clear, the dictionary defines racism this way. It's prejudice discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. I, however, beg to differ that this is not racism. This is prejudice and bias for sure. Even a superiority complex, you can call it all those things, but it's not racism. Here's why. Prejudice and bias based on another person's race only becomes racism when there's an element of power That is introduced. In other words, it's only when a person who has a bias towards another person and has the power and the ability to actually cause that person to suffer harm in some way, shape, or form, that's when it becomes racism. I can sit here and I cannot like you for whatever reason, but it ain't racism until I have the power, the power to do something that causes you harm. And so when the people on television say Donald Trump is racist, they are correct because he has proven his bias and he has the power and ability to act on that bias. Listen, church. We could come here and sing and shout hallelujah every day, which is important and necessary to do. But we also need to be edified. We also need to understand the signs of the times. We also need to understand what is really happening. We cannot be like ostriches and dig our heads in the sand and pretend that this is all going to go away. It's been here from the beginning. It's been here since heaven. It's been here since the Garden of Eden. And it is here now. Donald Trump didn't start it, but heaven knows Jesus will finish it. In our text, in the book of Esther, we find a classic case of racism shown. Most theologians in discussing the book of Esther, and Dr. Kim Anderson can attest to this because we know it to be true, they they, they point to the basic premise that the book serves to inform us that the people of God will suffer severely at times at the hands of God's enemies. True. True. That God will preserve his people in their time of oppression. True. That the Lord will reverse the fortunes of those who oppress his people and will exalt his people from their humble state. True. That that the people of God must seek help from God and remain faithful to him despite the trials of suffering. True. And that the people of God should regularly commemorate the wonders of God's deliverances in the past for the courage for their present trials. All of this is true, and you can preach that from Esther, from the book of Esther, from now till thy kingdom come, and everything will be okay. All true, but I wonder, theologically, how this works for the families of Tulsa, Sandy Hook, Las Vegas, El Paso, and Dayton, Ohio. What does what does yes God is gonna protect when they have lost their father and their mother, their sister and their brother? What how does how does the church make people feel in those moments when the last thing they want to hear is that God will be a very present help in time of need? We need him now, we need him, we need him before the shooting. We need him. That's where those families are. And the church, we can use wonderful words and say nice things as long as it wasn't our family member that suffered. By way of summary, and I'm going through this quickly, because we're going somewhere, we're going to get there. The book of Esther opens with a description of an enormous 180-day party that was thrown by the king in his third year. The king rules over about 127 provinces in the Persian Empire, and as the feasting was drawing to a close... As it was getting to a close, the drunk king, because many people like to read it and say that this king was a nice king, the drunk king asked for his wife, Queen Vashti, to come before all of his drunk friends. Now, if you read the text very carefully, you might miss what happened, because everyone likes to look at Queen Vashti and say she was a bad person. The king summoned her. Why? Because she was so beautiful. And the king wanted all of his drunk friends to see how beautiful Vashti was. But the Bible tells us that Vashti refused. Now, I say to myself, I think to myself, if, if I'm the queen and my husband thinks I'm beautiful and he wants to bring me in front of people so that people can see how beautiful I am, ain't nothing wrong with that. It's cool. She should be like, hey, she the queen. But if you read the text carefully, the Bible lets you know the the, the king was drunk. All of his friends were drunk. And in their drunken state, he summoned the queen. But the text says he asked for the queen to come in the royal crown. Why would she refuse that? I'll tell you why. If, as men, and I'm gonna be honest with y'all, Ken back me up, and Eve, if you need to all come, you know, protect me. (laughs) When a man thinks a woman is beautiful, hear me clearly, it ain't just a pretty face. It's the Coca-Cola bottle. (laughs) Now, I want you to stay in the text. I want you to stay in the text because I'm being frank. You need to understand that what the king wanted the queen to do was to come into his court with all of his drunk friends only wearing the crown. He wanted to show off his queen. Let her let everyone see her assets. And the queen thinking that this is degrading refused the king. And rightfully so. Amen. And in our society today, we have a tendency to objectify women. Yes, sir. And so I'm telling you that there is nothing new under the sun. Mm. Even today, men parade walking around. And even if you see it in Hollywood, the sooner the woman starts to change. Yeah. Whether they made marital vows or not, they're ready for the next one. Yeah. So this is what was going on. And Queen Vashti says, uh-uh, not on my watch. You can keep your stupid crown. Dignity is something that cannot be bought. So the ministers didn't like it because they didn't get their fair share of eye candy of the queen. And so they instructed, listen, the Bible is a real book. You may not have heard this kind of preaching, but the Bible is a real book about real people. So the ministers decide to have, tell the king, banish her and find someone else. And this is where we find and we're introduced to another person who is in one of the provinces of the king. A young lady by the name of Esther. Her, her, her Hebrew name is Hadassah. And she was being raised by her cousin. Some people say Mordecai is her uncle, but if you read it, it's, the text actually says she was the daughter of his uncle, making her his cousin. And he raised Esther because, simply because she now was an orphan and her parents had died. And she was one of those women that was selected out of the city. And when she was going, her, her cousin Mordecai said to her, do not let anybody know that you're a Jew. Keep it a secret. Don't let anybody know that you're Jamaican. Don't let anybody know that you're Haitian. Keep it a secret. Right? That's the idea. So, so, so Esther, she goes in, and, but Mordecai found out, and I'm giving you a real cliff note to the story. Mordecai finds out that there was a plot to kill the king. And so Mordecai gets to Esther and says, yo, listen, Esther, they're going to try to kill the king, and these are the people that's going to do it. Esther goes and informs the king. They did an investigation. They found it to be credible, and the king had those people executed. Now there was a prime minister by the name of Haman. And Haman now was a little big for his britches. And Haman think that he was all that and a bag of Chips. And Haman puts out a law and a decree that says, when I come around, everybody needs to bow down to me. Everybody in the city, because I am big bad Haman. But there was one person in the city, this one person would never bow down to Haman, and that was Mordecai. You see, Mordecai is from the old school that says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Mordecai is from the old school. Mordecai says, no, Haman, I ain't going to bow down to you. And this infuriates Haman. You see, so Haman now runs to the king and says, now, I'll say this, very sidebar. When you're in positions of leadership, you need to be very careful of the people that you allow to have access to you. It's not saying that you are better than anybody else. It's just that there are some things that just aren't for your ears. And so Haman comes to the king because he had access. Sometimes the fall of many of our leaders in this world is because they've given access to the wrong people. So Haman comes to the king and says, you know, king, there are a group of people. They cross the border, and they have a completely different set of laws than we have. I think you should wipe them out. And the king, probably in his own drunken stupor, makes a decree that he couldn't take back. And so now there is this rule that all of these people, all of these Jewish people are going to now be dead. Mordecai again hears about this. Mordecai runs to Esther, and Mordecai says to Esther, there is a plot to kill all of the Jews, so you need to go before the king and stop this. Now Esther, as we all know, what does she do? Esther goes, wait a second, you can't just walk in to see the king. You've got to be summoned. If you're not summoned and you walk before the king, you could be killed. This king would have to raise his royal scepter, and then you can come in, and then you're okay. So she's like, I ain't trying to go out like that. And Mordecai says, listen, you think you went there for your pretty looks? You went there to be what God needs you to be. So if you die, you die. But you must do this to save God's people. So Esther... She prays and she fasts and she do all of these wonderful things and she muscles up the nerve to go before the king and she tells the king what's going on. Now I'm just giving you the cliff notes and going through this really fast. So Esther goes before the king and she tells the king. Now, 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 Morde- Mordecai is out in sackcloth and ashes having a public protest about what's about to happen. <laughs> he marches in with Al Sharpton about through the city, about all that's going on, right? Now, you got to understand that the church functions in many ways. There are some that march like the Mordecai, but there are some who has access in the court. But the church makes is everywhere. Anyway, to make a long story short, she invites Haman and the king to a banquet, and Haman thinks that this is something that's about him. Be very careful what you dig. Amen. Be very careful of the gallows that you're building. Yeah. So let's look at the text again. So, Haman, this is now where Haman gets invited, and Haman is so thrilled. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when, and again, I want you to bring, I, want, I told you all of that because I wanted you to have context. But when Haman saw Mordecai, Marching with Al Sharpton in the king's gate. And that he did not stand up or tremble before him. Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Watch verse 10. Haman controlled himself. However, he went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him before the princes and the servants. And of course, it goes on. He says, even the queen, let no one come before the king but me to the banquet that she has prepared. Yet all of this does not satisfy me. Because every time I see Mordecai the Jew, every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, it doesn't satisfy me. So his friends and his wife said, Build, build a 75 foot gallows and have the king, because you have access to the king, hang Mordecai on it. The thing that I want you to notice carefully in these texts, right? And I'm only going to make a few points. Is that first of all, the text tells us Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. But he had what? The ability to control himself. Right, right here, verse 10, right? Which lets us know, brothers and sisters, that when you have harbored anger in your heart for your brother and your sister, believe me, you have the ability to control yourself and because you can control yourself, it means that you are accountable. When you harbor anger and hatred towards your brother or your sister, you have the ability to control yourself, and you will be held to account. Jesus has reminded us, and he said it. Listen, if you even harbor hatred towards your brother, you have already committed murder. You are accountable, so be careful. Yeah. So the first thing we notice is that Haman was filled with anger, but he was accountable. Second thing is, Haman went around and surrounded himself With people that was just like him. In other words, misery loves company. And the insidious, hateful behavior will always look for other people to co-sign on their foolishness. When you have devised something evil in your heart, which you are accountable for, then chances are you're going to find some people to hang around you that's going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing this, yeah, yeah. She. And you don't know everything. You don't know the whole story. Remember, I began, all things work together for the good. Yes. Not for your good, but God knows you don't. And none of us is righteous, not even one. One. So be careful when you think you know more than God. Listen, as a pastor, as a preacher, I humble myself before I come. I don't always want to say things and do things that people don't always agree with, but I'm not here to be liked. Because the truth of the matter is I can make you all cushy in the seats as you lead yourselves to the pits of hell. The church needs to speak the truth with authority and power. So Haman surrounded himself with like-minded people. Then it goes on, Haman had extreme narcissism. He went around bragging about himself unashamedly, talking about how rich he is and how much people love him and how he's the most intelligent person and the most successful president in the history of the Persian Empire. Brothers and sisters, pride always goes before a fall. And then finally, Mm. he had insatiable hatred. Haman's hatred for Mordecai was insatiable, and therefore it could never be satisfied. All the money, all the women, all the real estate, all the accomplishments in the world could never get Haman to stop hating the fact that Mordecai had a much larger crowd at his inauguration. And still enjoys a 90% approval rating even after his retirement. I know you're hearing me. So, hey, listen, there's nothing new under the sun. We've seen this movie before. But but, but my brothers and my sisters, (laughs) listen, listen, listen. I know how the movie ends. So Haman was filled with anger. He surrounded himself with like-minded people in his cabinet. He had extreme narcissism thinking that he has the best words. And, and, and he has this insatiable hatred for someone who he cannot match. The point is, hatred is a heart condition that goes well beyond anything other than a demonic influence. It is insidious. And irrespective of how nice you may think you are or how pleasant you may feel in the moment, hate has the potential to completely blind your eyes from being able to give and to receive love from those with whom you have a negative bias but the words of the apostle paul still rings true god causes all things to work together for good to those who love the lord and to those who are called according to his purpose watch this so here's how it ends in spite of all of haman's attempts out of his own mouth and the company of his illicit cabinet came his own demise. I see the parallel between all the anger, hate, and vitriol being propagated across the news media, and in particular Fox News and others. And so I pay close attention to Haman, I mean President Trump, and what his advisors are saying because out of their own mouths, and out of their own actions, they have predicted their destiny. So, my prophetic call, I did in 2016, my prophetic call in 2019, to this administration, be careful of the cage you build. Be careful of the cage you build. You see, Haman built the gallows. This president is building a cage. Be careful of the cage you build. As I close, Jesus was led down to Calvary's cross to be shamed and humiliated and to suffer the punishment of the curse of sin. But he rose from the grave on the third day and he declared victory over hate. And that victory has been imputed to you and to me. And so despite all of this white supremacy, which is not new to us, despite all of the police brutality, which is not new to us, despite the disenfranchisement and the marginalization, which is not new to us, despite the divisive rhetoric, which is not new to us, do not lose heart, nor get weary in well-doing, for in due season, in due season, in due season, We shall reap our reward if we fail not. For my brothers and sisters, we don't need Esther in the king's court. We have the Lord Jesus Christ on our side. Who fights our battles. Who fights for the less fortunate. Who fights for the widows and the orphans. Who fights for all those who have seen... All of this before yes. and I believe with all of my heart that while I pray for this president I cannot not say what God has said be careful of the cage you build may the Lord richly richly bless you my beloved